Released in 2002, Panic Room was seen as something that was an easier project for Fincher following on from Fight Club, which required hundreds of shots and hundreds of locations. Fincher saw the idea of a film shot all within one location, a locked room mystery, as being a much easier prospect. It's also a chance for him to make a film that, as he saw it, that people could go on a Friday night and take a date to go and see, whereas previous films up until this point had been more complex, more involved. And certainly while his intentions for the game had certainly been to do this sort of movie it had once again fallen into the same category as both Seven and Fight Club and even Alien 3 has been more complex than it probably should have been here with Panic Room the we see Jodie Foster and a very young Kirsten Stewart uh, moving into their new new property up in the Manhattan Upper District uh, discovering that it has a mysterious Panic Room put in by the former owner where residents in case of a break-in can go and hide out in what is essentially a glorified bank vault and wait for the police to arrive. Certainly this comes in handy when three mysterious assailants break into the house. The only problem is they want what's inside the panic room. I'm Elwood. I'm Kim. And you're listening to Booze and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. And uh, welcome to another excellent edition of Boots and Tea. Tonight we're obviously talking about Panic Room um, as part of our David Fincher season. And I think this is really the perfect sort of movie since we're all locked in our own houses to essentially look at a movie which takes place in a house. Um, and As we're recording this, because maybe we'll be out of confinement by the time this goes up. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, who knows what's happening in the world today, do we? So... But, you know, you can watch this and then find inspiration for sh- shooting your own remake, perhaps. I don't know. But, um, Kim, I mean, this was one of the films when we look at the filmography that you were sort of most excited to talk about. Um, certainly for myself, we've already had a couple of those fanboy moments with both like the likes of Alien 3, 7 and Fight Club, um, especially, and certainly more to come as we look ahead to the to what is uh, to come in the season but what is it about Panic Room that particularly appeals to yourself I've always been like um, a fan of the one room mystery concept the one location is always such an intriguing thing because I find that when executed well you can make this location so memorable and you can navigate this location really well and just being locked in has this mystery and has this, I guess it's not so much a mystery anymore, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean like with, uh, with threat around you and all that and how you can change from that moment, uh, like how much there's, it feels like it's such a small area to explore and yet 
they're able to build so much out of it. And Panic Room is one of those situations where, in the hands of David Fincher, obviously, it helps so much because he's able to really give those, um, the mystery and the thriller elements, a lot of depth and a lot of, it makes it just so intriguing to watch. And obviously, they're paired with some really great performances from Jodie Foster, Kristen Stewart, uh, Jared Leto, Forrest Whitaker, you know. The whole cast was really, really good. Definitely so. And I mean, this is a film really suited to Fincher's sort of style and sensibilities, in particular the use of the impossible shot, which really comes into its own in this film, and certainly something that we saw introduced in in the previous film, Fight Club. And Fincher's always been one of those directors who's embraced the use of modern technology and CGI and just having the sort of freedom with the filmmaking to just shoot the films he wants and to take the camera essentially anywhere. Um, even though it's often at the expense of the uh, the crew obviously having to work longer hours and the, the setups requiring more effort. But certainly when you look at Fincher's films, the amount of effort he puts into the film, it always pays off and looks great on the screen. And certainly the way he moves the camera, the way we move around this, this house, it just pays off in spades with uh, how the camera work looks here. And when I look at the other directors that were attached to this, I mean, Ridley Scott was first attached to it. Forrest Whitaker was at one point going to be attached to direct the film um, before it obviously fell in the hands of David Fincher. And from a sort of the cinematography sort of standpoint, I mean, how do you do you find it? I mean, do you find like that use of the impossible shot, the use of CGI to sort of move the camera going into these impossible places, sort of like a little sort of you know cliche, a little tacky, or do you think it sort of adds to the story in the same way that we saw with Fight Club? Well, I mean, David Fincher and cinematography, you can you can't really complain a lot about it, at least so far in the movies that we've seen in in his filmography that we've looked at. He's, he's really been able to manage the the impossible shot and all those things really well. And, I mean, Panic Room is is really... I think the cinematography here is really great as well. Because, I mean, with, with even the CGI and all that, as he navigates around the house and with the camera, it really... It gives you... It gives the house... Like, I mean, this is a big house. <laughs> this is a big house. Yeah. And they give this house so much room. And you get such a good knowledge of where everything is. And that's all credit to how he shoots it. And how he introduces the house. And how he navigates to where everything is. And, and what are the options that... If you remember the details and whatnot, just like our... Like the the characters do, that they're able to use this to their advantage, and this all adds up to the story, and that all has to do with being able to execute the 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 good cinematography to capture these shots, and just and I mean one of the really great things about here is I think with cinematography is the fact that the camera never leaves the inside of the house except for the start of the movie when they're going to see the house and they enter it and at the end when they have left the house. Uh, but I mean, in the middle, pretty much even when they're doing the house tour, even when they're in the house, even when the the assailants are trying to break into the house, the camera is always inside shooting outwards. And I think that that adds so much to just the the way the movie is shown and the, adds so much mystery as well. 
Oh, fantastic. Um, now, here we obviously see Jodie Foster stars here as Meg, a recently divorced woman who's moved into this house with her daughter, Sarah. And we learn through the sort of the bits and pieces that we sort of gather that um, her the breakdown of her marriage was the result of her husband leaving her for a younger woman. And this basically by them moving into the house it's kind of a way of evening the score the fact that it would be making good by him paying for them to uh, move into this this the house which is really beyond them their means nobody needs a house this big for two people but apparently they need this huge three-story house with this panic room and all these other bits and pieces now the the role of meg originally was going to be played by nicole kimmer and she actually dropped out shortly into into filming as a hairline a knee injury she suffered while shooting Moulin Rouge turned into a hairline fracture um, during the very early into shooting, and they basically had to bring in Jodie Foster to replace her. And this in turn provides its own problems because obviously when you look at Nicole Kidman, she's all about you know glamour and uh, physicality and when you look at Jodie Foster it's, you can't exactly play the character the same way so this certainly prevented, presented some issues for Fincher with certain scenes having to be reshot or removed around such as the opening scene where we see Sarah and Meg um, they've just moved into the house and they're having the conversation over, over pizza and originally it was uh, more it was more about Sarah playing the adult to um her mother mm. who her mother was going to be like this uh more kind of like a, a trophy wife who was now having to find a way in the world with, as the result of her husband and you know her payday disappearing on her um nicole kimmon actually does turn up in the film she has a little brief uh cameo as she plays um the the girlfriend of um of meg's husband who you can hear in the background uh when uh he first answers the phone so uh, oh really i didn't know that <laughs> yeah um and uh also the uh screenwriter for the film also turns up as the neighbor who ignores their attempts to sos <laughs> so that's your that's your two cameos there but um the film is actually written by david uh nope i'm not sure if it's a name that sort of stands out to yourself at all Sounds familiar, but yet I don't know because I confuse names like these all the time. I confuse okay. names all the time. So okay, well, I mean, he's written, uh, he's been a writer on several big projects, including Jurassic Park, Lord's Way. Um, he was, was D, he directed and wrote Stir of Echoes from 1999. Um, mm -hmm. And he also did The uh, Lost World Jurassic Park as well. And So he's a, definitely a writer who's who's always been there he's normally in more in a co-writing sort of status rather than a sort of solo writer i mean there's a couple of films that he wrote solo such as like the shadow and obviously stereo records was one of his and panic room again is uh, another of his solo efforts as well with the relationship between you know mother and daughter here i mean i personally really adore jodie foster so the fact that she's here in the lead role it's fantastic. I mean, Fincher originally had wanted to work with her back on the game, uh, where she had, was going to play Michael Douglas's sister in the in the film, but that fell through. Uh, so it was great mm -hmm. to see Fincher and Foster working together. And it's kind of an interesting dynamic, the fact that here we have a film with three directors working on it, because 
both Jodie Foster and Forrest Whitaker have directed, and obviously mm-hmm. Finch's obviously directing this, uh, trying to do this thing. So it's a really interesting dynamic on set um, to have like three three directors working on a film and I think it also helped in the fact that when you have someone who with Finch who wants to shoot like 70 takes of um, like insulin being thrown across the floor just because he knows that exact shot that he wants there's a little more understanding than if you're just dealing with actors who don't perhaps understand what why this director is showing such a obsession over a single shot uh, but yeah, I was just really interested what you made of obviously Judge Foster and Kristen Stewart's character's relationship because I thought it, it came across very sort of natural. And it, as much as I was interested to see how well Kristen Stewart and Nicole Kidman's relationship would have would have been, I thought that the one that we get with uh, Judy Foster, it's it felt very honest and very sort of natural. It didn't feel like just two actors pretending to be related to each other. Well, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I I personally like Jodie Foster a lot. I've watched her in a lot of movies, um, like, well, a few movies where she has been somewhat of, like, a maybe more of a needs-to-be-taken-care older woman, <laughs> like okay. like a parent uh, type of thing. I mean, I saw her, and she, she played someone like that, like, in Nim's Island. Granted, she wasn't playing a mom, but she was playing, like, um, an author who was kind of... Uh, very, I don't know, scared of everything around her for, it was like a contrast to the the books that she wrote. Um, but I mean, in general, I think that, you know, jo- Jodie Foster was a really good choice for this because honestly, as much as, I mean, maybe it's because for Nicole Kidman, I would have seen her, because I've seen the others, I would have pictured her more as like a strict mom more than like the needs to be taken care of by the daughter mom yeah. you know which is what this relationship is really about it's it's that you know she has her position but her daughter is the one who grounds her a lot um like sarah will will have these like snarky comments but at the same time she also has she also knows like when her mom's freaking out or whatnot and then she would kind of have these things that says it and then it would kind of be like it reminds like uh it reminds meg that she, she's the parent that she has to think of something and it makes her very proactive in the situation to to kind of navigate around the room and and find what needs to be done where when it first like went between their interactions and stuff you can really see that i mean this mother and daughter has their own dynamic that works and i mean i mean, i believe that they were mother and daughter it's it's very they they work they play off of each other really well um and i think that has to do a lot with i think it would have a lot to do with like how they structure every dialogue and interaction that they have while they're in the panic room and how it sets up even before i mean the movie starts pretty quickly like the the whole assailant moving in and then the assailants um breaking in everything happens really quickly so, but they still manage to use that little time and those little conversations and just the be- even the beginning of that panic room situation to really kind of set the stage of what this relationship is and how they work with each other really well. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think that when you look at how Jodie Foster's obviously playing this character of of Meg, it makes a lot more sense, a lot of the smaller details, such as obviously with the fact that Sarah's diabetic. So the when mm-hmm. you have the scene where the dinner table scene and she's there topping up her cola and you've got she's got like the mini fridge there with like the water and the and the insulin sorted. And those are the sort of things that I could see Jodie Foster playing this character would would do. Where if it was Nicole Kidman, I wouldn't see her as having such mindfulness of a daughter's condition to have all these things in place. It would be, I would say, it would be she would be a lot more sort of focused on you know getting things moved in and things wouldn't be where you where they should be like this early into the move where Meg is seen as having everything pretty much under control. She's got the sort of foundation of home life already in place even though they just moved into the property and it just shows that sort of focus that uh that she has that she didn't she doesn't need uh the husband that she's lost whereas if nicole kidman's playing that you get the feeling that she would be more lost without that husband figure in her life um which would again would have made it really interesting the fact that when the husband is brought into the the film later how that sort of relationship would have played does he seen as more of a you know the shining knight in the fact that he's coming to to rescue these two women whereas in the case of uh of jodie foster's portrayal of the character it's sort of like he's just there to provide you know assistance she's pretty much got the situation under control the best she can um she just needs that outside help to to try and relieve uh, some of the stress that they're under really because but I, I certainly love her resourcefulness for someone who's sort of been thrown into the situation. She, you never get the feeling that she's like had any sort of like training in how to deal with the situation. She's just constantly thinking on her feet on a, on like adapting to the situation. It always feels very natural how she adapts to it. So there's never any sort of like leaps in logic of how she handles any of these situations at all. Yeah, I mean, she she pretty much deals with the with with what she has on hand, and um, I mean, this is where I think the mother daughter relationship really plays off each other because in the beginning she's kind of a bit more panicked as the mother, and then you see Sarah and she's she's telling her to not get worked up, but what Sarah is doing is looking through everything to see what they have and what they can use and and that sort of thing, and there's this kind of organization that works between the two. Jodie Foster is able to. I don't know. Jodie Foster is really good in thrillers, I find. (laughs) She has that, like, panicked feeling that is just the right amount to make it believable, but to get you really worked up with her. But at the same time, her character always has this strength to her that gives her this this trajectory, this believable trajectory of what she's going to do next and what she and 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 there's this kind of unknown factor because at the same time she's kind of just like you know the just that just that moment where she's like tosses the fire blanket <laughs> at Sarah and cover yourself and then she's like trying to do the vent thing and and like and like blow up the <laughs> and then like put the, the the fire in there or whatnot it was it was just you know just that one scene was was kind of like you can tell that she was in panic, but they had to do something, and this was the only thing she could think of, even though it sounded like the craziest thing to be doing at that moment. 
Oh yeah, and there's so many lines that Foster improvised, which I think is just something that comes with experience. When you look at the the fact that Foster has been acting for so many years now, she was a yes. child actor turned adult actress. So the fact she can just improv lines, in, especially in terms of her character, I mean, she had eleven days to prep for the role, so she was brought in like like real sort of last minute notice because they were already shooting at the time and they were just basically trying to work around the scenes with Meg. And then she improvised like fun little lines in here, like um, when she says goodnight to Sarah. And originally it was in the script as just like, I love you. And she changed it to, it's disgusting how much I love you, which I think was just really touching. And the scene when um, after, as you said, with the, the vent where she caused that huge fireball and she looks at him, it's like, I don't want to see you ever do that again. And the. the the fact that Kristen Stewart's, I probably wasn't expecting the line, just that shock on her. He's like, what do I do? What do I do? Look on her face. But it worked perfectly. Of Almost as if like she was like throwing the line out there just because she knew it would create that sort of panicked reaction that needed for that, the aftermath of uh, what's happened to them. So, But yeah, um, yeah Jodie Foster didn't help situations by shortly after the film started, she got pregnant. So when you've got a character who's running around essentially in a tank top for most of the film and showing signs of heavy pregnancy, it gets a little creative. So Fincher explained basically in the making of that they used her stunt double for a lot of the physical stuff and then a lot headshot uh, and close-ups they would shoot Jodie Foster and then because the film's been shot in chronological order when she's into her later states of uh, pregnancy that's when she starts wearing the thick jumper to hide uh, her pregnancy but uh, as of the uh, process she did actually say going to say that you know if shooting had gone any longer she was going to wear a tank top that just basically said fuck off across the front But um, I was interested when you have an actress gets pregnant and they still like in the middle of a season they're having to work around it. I mean, we saw it with Jillian uh, Anson in the second season, of The X Files. She got pregnant and they had to keep shooting Scully's character in like big long trench coats and holding, always holding um, clipboards to hide her bumps. So it's always fun how they work around these things. Now you mentioned already. I mean, the fact that we go quite quickly into the home invasion aspect because i mean this film fincher describes it as real winter meets straw dogs um though he says a lot of people probably see it as home alone meets straw dogs because they probably haven't seen real winter and we've uh, are very quickly introduced to our trio of home invaders who are all stand out in their own unique ways and before we obviously talk about them i mean i love the shot of when they're first introduced and they're sort of caging the outside and you see them like come to the windows, these haunting sort of spectres. And it was on this rewatch, I have to wonder like, why when we watch these films, does everybody sleep with the curtains open? Nobody ever draws the curtains when they go to sleep. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very weird. It's very weird because I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know because... I've only started drawing the curtains after I got, I got married because yeah. my husband's really into drawing the curtains when he sleeps. Like he needs a dark, dark room. But for myself, I don't really care. I actually like light coming in. I just don't like like the fact that if you were in a house like that, then like at least the ground floors, the curtains would have been closed. Yeah. Right. And I don't know. I mean, it's it's one of those questions that you can. Well, you can also say that they just moved in and they didn't install the curtains yet. 
Yeah, she could. I mean, they barely in- they barely install the phone, so <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I just for myself, I don't like looking out the window when it's dark out there. It's it uh, messes with my mind too much. So I, I again, I couldn't have bloody wind and curtains open and stuff. It just like it just dawned me. It's like why has nobody got the curtains open? And when you look at the guy who lives across from them, he only draws his blinds when they've been and pissed him off with the bloody flashlight. <laughs> Um, but yeah, our trio of uh, home invaders here. I mean, we obviously got Forrest Whitaker um, as the blue collar tech, uh, should we say, who is panic room and knows exactly what's hidden inside it. Uh, we've also got um, Jared Leto here um, playing. How would you? I mean, how would you just describe um, Junior exactly? Because He's basically, first of all, he's a white guy with cornrows, which is always a tragic look. Um, and he's a bit high strung, to say the least. So he's kind of an interesting go between, where, between obviously the calm nature of Forrest Whitaker's um, Burnham. And then on the other hand, you've also got Dwight Yoakam's psychopath Raoul, who spends a great deal of the film in a balaclava. Because that, of course, doesn't raise any suspicion when you're caging someone's house, does it? Jared Leto is, he's kind of like twofold, right? On one hand, he's kind of like the mastermind behind it. But at the same time, he's only, he has more, like, he's the one that has the most knowledge about what's in the panic room. Because he's the previous owner's grandson. Who kind of wants to take all the money before... The inheritance is announced yeah. or something, I think. Yeah, so, I mean, he, he kind of plays, like, the boss, right? He wants people to listen to him. He wants to be the leader. And that's why he also recruits... Uh, he also recruits Raul, who is um, a hitman, essentially. Uh, he does all the... He's more kind of like... He's more kind of like the character which does all the fighting and all the rough work and all that stuff. Yeah, Raul's, um he's introduced as apparently the specialist. Um, and the fact that he's so further backed up is like, who's this guy? And he's like, I'm Raul. And that's all he says. He's not like like any of like what he's done previously. He's just, yeah, he's Raul. But we obviously find out a bit later that perhaps he's not quite the person he, he's portraying himself to be. Um, the character of Raul is actually played by uh, country music star David Dwight Yoakam. I don't know if... Uh, he sells any records in your town, but um, originally it was actually going to go to the lead singer at all, but uh, due to scheduling conflicts, it uh, actually went to Yoakum, who'd done some acting before. I believe he was in Singblade. But um, yeah, I mean, he's obviously mm-hmm. done some some acting um, bits, bits and pieces before, but, but this is um, certainly a very memorable role. Even if he spends a, a great deal of the film with his his face covered in this this balaclava but i think it really sort of pays off all the more because he's responsible for giving us our face of evil shot uh, towards the end when we get to see just how truly nasty he is but um yeah it's an interesting dynamic that we got between between the three three characters i mean raul was originally going to be a part of a taurus ritica because he was supposed to be like this big hawking guy and 
because uh, Forrest Whitaker was more attracted to the character Burnham, the Fincher changed it so that he was more of a, like a wary ex-con style character, which I think works out better in, in the long run, especially when you get to see what's under the mask, and I think Joachim's really got a, a face for this sort of character. Especially one that he contorts really, really well, when he the more evil he gets. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, when it, for myself, I mean, when I look at the characters, like, is it, it feels like you've got Raul, who's sort of like the more, the more psychotic, more, um, the more quick to, to violence and more extreme methods, and then you've got Burnham, who's more sort of, you know, reserved, quiet, and he's more just, more uh, logical in his approach, and then we've obviously got in between, we've got Junior, who seems to be like, it almost seems like these other two characters are like his conscience and he's constantly like going back and forth which side am I supposed to listen to? Do I like stick with Bernard's plan because he's like the expert and knows that, you know, what the best way to do it or do I go with Raoul's methods who's sort of more direct and thinks that, you know, things can be done with brute force often, um, such as the fact that if we can't go through the front door, we'll just go up for the floor. You know, not taking into account the fact is essentially a vault built into a house um so it's like steel floors and walls and everything so but yeah i mean i was how did you find like the these these characters in in particular i mean do they sort of stand out to yourself or how did they sort of vibe with you well i mean it's hard it's hard for the three assailants to not stand out i think mostly because you know, the, the movie only has the, what, five, six characters that we're dealing with, and a good portion of it we're dealing with, we're watching their side of the story, and then we're watching, you know, the, the, the mother and daughter in the inside. And slowly the situation becomes really apparent with the three assailants that, honestly, they're only together, like, a one-time deal on this job. So they have, like, not too much chemistry yeah. i guess with each other coordination cooperation everybody seems to be seems on their seems to be on their own side right i mean forrest whitaker's character burnham is there as the expert he's quiet the only reason he joined this was because the house was supposed to be empty and they were gonna go in and come out with no one hurt nothing happening and and it would just be a, a quick job it would be an easy job that he can use uh, that because he can use that money for for his, for what for you know his own purpose, but at the same time you know like you said Jared Leto is more the Junior is the kind of like middle character he he wants the money he's hiding some of the facts and but at the same time he also doesn't have the smarts of Burnham but at this but also he doesn't have the the psychotic, I guess, the viciousness of of Raoul's character. So he's kind of like the, somewhat useless in the whole situation because he's trying to be the leader, but he really isn't. He's constantly being led by someone else. Like Burnham ends up taking, taking like finding a solution to the problems that they can't seem to solve in, in whatever way. Or, you know, Raoul will have his own way to deal with it and he can't control him even though he thinks that he can. Um, and this is and this constant dynamic that they have and this whole arguing and all those things is the reason that is the, is the reason that their lack of I guess just coordination and cooperation gives 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 the story this extra like, they, they end up having these like open window time where 
the like Jodie Foster's character can do things, can execute certain things that she's trying to do, like go get her cell phone or <laughs> you know run out of the room or or whatever they have to achieve. Yeah, it's. And the character, I mean, with Junior, I always, every time I, like, look at his character, he's just, like, someone who's trying to be a tough guy, but he's really not. So we see him, like, with the cornrows, and he's got this sort of, like, you know, rap star gangster swagger to him. And you see how quickly, when the situations go south, how he's, he's like, he's all constantly out the door. As soon as they hit a setback, he's, like, oh, first one always out the door. And then hit someone, like, clawing back by saying, you know, we can go this other way. And it's just really interesting when you see, like, when they first, like, starting out and the fact that when they first, they hit that first sort of roadblock with, you know, Meg and Sarah d- dashing into the panic room, the one room they don't want them to be in. Um he's sort of like pretty much ready to go and then he's sort of like Raul's uh, sort of directness of like just basically pick up the sledge and start smashing things up um, sort of holds his attention where Benham just goes off and he's like he w- figures out his own sort of plan of using the the gas cylinder and to this extent I think this is the one sort of evil move that Burnham has in the film which makes him a kind of like a probably dubious sort of character because He's seen as, you know, as you said, he's just this guy who's been drawn into this situation. He didn't want uh, anyone to get hurt because he didn't think anyone's going to be at the property. So he was just there to handle the technical side and to break into the vault and and whatnot. But then we have that moment with the 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 gas cylinder where he he's the one who comes up with the idea of gassing the panic room, which is kind of dark. It it is it is dark, but I think that at the same time, his por- his purpose is that he didn't expect that they would stay inside the room. He just wanted to gas them out. Yeah, for sure. And while while the the thought is dark, I mean, it just didn't turn out the way that he expected because they reacted in a much more extreme way than he expected them to just take the easy way out and and just you know literally get out of the panic room so that they would be able to, I don't know, restrain them and, and just go in and do whatever they have to do. Yeah, um, and it's certainly his character's path over the course of the film, just like these moral lines that he's constantly forcing to sort of cross, and you think, well, how far is this guy willing to go? It's like, at what point does he just, you know, give up on, on this idea? Because I have to say, he's more dedicated than I would have thought for someone who'd been drawn into this situation. I would have thought that after the fact, the fact that they almost get blown up with gas and I thought that would have been enough to just like, you know, call it a day and it's like, I'm out of here. Uh, but for some reason, he, he constantly sticks with me. He's constantly working on trying to figure out ways to, to like counter the security measures within the panic room and to find a way to get into the room. And uh, we also see him at the same time, even though he's going further and further into this sort of like criminal line that he still has these redeeming moments such as the fact he gives Sarah insulin and he shows real sort of compassion to almost like protecting her from Raoul um and the fact that he like he chooses to go back at the end um he has these sort of like uh redeeming redeeming sort of moments around him which makes him a more it makes him a more a very interesting sort of character to to look at and certainly 
one whose journey is probably the most interesting of the characters in the film, whereas everyone else has sort of very sort of set courses. His seems to like take the most different, most sort of turns as we go. Yeah, and and you know, I think you know, I mean, I think you really hit you you got you got it there. I mean, in that sense that. Like, Forrest Whitaker does a great job at this. I mean, Forrest Whitaker by himself, I think he's super underrated as an actor. And, I mean, he's done some incredible roles. And he's in probably in more things than I can remember sometimes. And, I mean, this is one of the roles that he really nails. Um, because, like like you said, I mean, Burnham it kind of, like, straddles the, the, the gray area of the character. Where you kind of, you kind of, like... You don't really hate him yeah. as the assailant, but you. But at the same time, I mean, he's not a bad person in reality. Uh, he's doing this because he desperately needs the money. So why he goes back is because the father in him that's doing it for his child is, is telling him that he doesn't want Sarah to get hurt or doesn't want any of these situations, you know, doesn't want anything bad to happen. So as much as... He wants to do this for as much as he's doing this because he needs the money for his for his own family. He's also doing this because he also goes back to kind of, I guess, save yeah. the situation a little by just really by also like being OK with it, like kind of making up for the fact that he's caused so much pain to the mother and daughter in this whole situation. Oh, for sure. Um, now, something that did obviously forget to mention about uh, Junior. I mean, this is the second time that Finch has brutalized Jared Leto. Um, he got his face reduced <laughs> to hamburger meat in Fight Club, and here we get to see him have his face burnt off, essentially, with a propane explosion. Fincher did cite that uh, the fact that, that Leto kept constantly making these like top 50 most beautiful people in the world uh list that he thought it amused him the idea of just constantly brutalizing his characters in films so uh that's why he, that's why he did really push for Leonard's character to be uh to get burnt and then shot in the head twice because he says he besides he's like look at that face wouldn't it, don't you think it would look beautiful to shoot it in the head um, I was surprised really of Junior's sudden exit from the film when it when it happens. I think it's a real sort of turning point. And it, it, is it? I mean, the fact that Raul shows this moment of, of violence and and suddenly kills Junior. That do you think that this is uh, one of the reasons that Burnham sort of stays on the job? This idea, this sense of danger he senses from Raul and he knows that if he leaves him with these people God knows what's going to happen to them as a result of that and that by staying on the job and seeing it through that he's maintaining some sort of control and in some indirect way looking after the lives of Sarah and Meg I'm not sure if it's that I don't know selfless <laughs> I think it's more for the fact that if Raul can, ki can kill uh, can kill Junior over him leaving, then he could equally do the same thing to to himself. And he needs to survive this in order 
to get out even with if he, yeah. even if it's without I mean the I wasn't money. sure that like Roe killed Junior just because he was leaving. I mean we have the scene before that where he basically says he's like, I know who you are, Roe. You drive a bus. You ain't a, <laughs> you ain't this person you're saying you are. Um and that Roe like after he kills him he says that he's like he knew too much about me. Which is it's, it's very it's at times it's hard to understand what Roe's mentality is. It just it constantly seems very direct and and sort of focused on getting to inside the room by any means possible. He, he's got very low moral sort of sense of a sense about you know gassing uh, Megan Sarah. I mean the fact that it has to be pointed out to him the fact that if he gasses them out um, that and they die and then they ain't going to be able to get into the into the panic room anyway. So. He constantly has to be like mm-hmm. pointed out to him and drawn back um, from from just being sort of let off his leash constantly to just do what he wants. So yeah, well, I mean, Raul is kind of like the he's the wild card, right? And he's also the twist factor in in the whole in, in Panic Room, pretty much. Uh, I mean, just from you know, you had talked before about him shooting Jared Leto, and then. Because he shoots the, the that character, he ends up having to. He ends up having kind of a more, I guess it it the power changes a little in that moment, and it's unexpected because while you see that Raul is getting slowly kind of more and more, a bit more crazier and a bit more intense in the decisions that he does and um, the actions that he chooses to take. You never quite expect him to do this because what would be the end game for him in this sense, right? Like, where would where would Burnham's loyalty stand in that sense? Like, I think that Raul's character is really that sort of character that David Fincher likes to work with, where it's it's kind of your unknown factor. You don't the audience doesn't know when Raul is going to change or what he'll do in the end and when he'll reveal himself, pretty much because he's. He, you know, he's covered. His face is covered the entire time. We don't know who he is. We, we only hear his voice, and then we have all these little, you know, these little hints of him being very unhinged in his decision and not afraid to make kind of like the more extreme choices. Um, so much that it doesn't seem like he really cares about the consequences of his actions as much as the other two will kind of, well, more like Bernard yeah. will analyze the situation because. He really knows what he wants out of the situation. But I think that's what gives Raul's character a lot more substance because he, what builds for his character is really the the second half where you start seeing a lot more of his true nature come out. Oh, definitely. So, and I think when this film first came out, I think one of the two talking points of the film was the character Raul, this, this guy in the balaclava, and who is just like, you know... And just the way he he sort of like um, carried himself, and the other the other big talking point was the fact that uh, everyone mistook Kristen Stewart for being a boy because she's got a very androgynous haircut, which I think they cut it a little too short, so it didn't do any favors in the fact that it made her look like <laughs> a a young boy throughout the film. So, as a film, I think Panic Room is. A film that really stands out. It's not as complex as some of his other films in in the filmography. I think it's due to its concept, it's a lot more simple. But at the same time, it's it's very effective, and I think it's one that we've kind of forgotten about as as Finch's obviously gone in his career and gone on to craft bigger and 
more sort of elaborate uh, films that we've kind of forgotten about Panic Room for some reason. And it's, I think the fact that it didn't have the sort of scandal around its production that Alien 3 had, and obviously the fact it wasn't uh, part of a big big franchise there, or the much like the game, it's not got that it's not got uh, the sort of parts in place to make it the same sort of cool classic that something like Fight Club or Seven is uh, where you can just sort of like constantly look at the many many different elements to the film it's all with both the game and, and Panic Room it feels very much like what we uh, what we get is is all the sort of presented us. there's no real big mystery here it's just the real enjoyment is just in how the story is told and how it uh, how it's shot and how it plays out um, but uh, for viewing, if you do obviously like Panic Room, what would you recommend watching with it? Uh, I mean, right off the bat, I th- I think that on a much smaller scale of a one location, uh, I would choose something like um, Phone Booth. Oh, good choice. Yeah, that was released in the same year, two thousand and two. <laughs> Joe Schumacher, uh, two thousand two, two thousand three, something like that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, uh, this one is with, obviously, with, uh, Colin Farrell, and it's, it's, he's this publicist that gets a, that finds himself trapped inside a phone booth, <laughs> while, and he's on the phone with some guy who, and he's trying to figure out why he's being caught there, uh, why they won't let him, you know, go for help or leave this, and, and it, it, and the movie really takes a, a height in this one, and I think that, you know, phone booth really, is a really thrilling adventure, I think. It's one of the first one-location movies that I watched um, that really got me into this one-location concept. Um, the second one is more recent. It would be 2016's Don't Breathe. Um, <laughs> uh, also one-location in a house, um, but it's more of a reverse situation because, who's be- <laughs> because uh, pretty much the three people that are breaking into the house end up being hunted by the owner of the house. (laughs) So um, if you watch, I think this actually works really well because it's kind of like you watch one situation and then the other situation. Um, Anyways, (laughs) that's my two choices. How about you? Yeah, it's very good. I mean, I was also going to like yourself. I was going to... um go with uh, Don't Breathe. I mean, I, I like you said, it's really fun, the fact that with this film, we're, we're obviously seeing it from the people breaking into the house, and then with Don't Breathe, we're following the people who are doing the breaking in, putting it in that same sort of category as uh, the people under the stairs, and obviously the big twist with uh, Don't Breathe is the fact you've got this blind guy who's perhaps not as uh, enabled as, as we might think, and I think it was only really the ending that kind of let it down, and the fact that it opens with a key shot from the ending that I didn't really like about um, didn't like about that film and certainly the lead actress who's in Zoe's Infinite Playlist whose name I can never remember um, is really good in it as well Jane, Jane Levy. Levy, yes um, who I think was also in the Evil Dead remake as well, which she was really good in So, yeah um, as for more sort of one location films uh, first one I want to Pick is another Jodie Foster movie, and that's a uh, flight plan. Um, okay. It's uh, also on a plane, and uh, basically, she plays uh, a mother who's traveling with her her child, and um, she falls asleep and finds that her child has mysterious somehow disappeared on the plane, and she has to try and find out 
what's happened to her daughter. Um, and it's a, it's a real interesting sort of mystery. I think it perhaps goes a little far-fetched in places, but, I mean, here we are dealing with a, a film taking place on a plane. It's There's only... You've got to have a little bit of um, flexibility to to make a story work in that sort of location. Um, the other one that I want to go with, um, again, another Jodie Foster movie here, um, is Inside Man, with Clive Owen um, heading up a team of uh, bank robbers who are breaking into a um, breaking into a, a bank vault and basically in instigate a standoff uh, with Denzel Washington's negotiator. Um, this one's got a really really good twist in it, so it's uh, definitely one worth checking out for for that. And it's kind of a bit of a departure for Spike Lee from his usual sort of um fair so it's uh kind of interesting to see doing a thriller especially a very fincher-esque self-thriller in many ways i think if if spike lee was to direct a fincher movie i think inside man would be as close as we're going to get to to that so those would be the two films that would sort of uh pair with this one um obviously there are other sort of like i was my mind was like trying to think of like films where people are trying to escape from like um from a room you know things like cube and fermat's uh theorem and maybe even like escape room you know the good one yeah not not, not the crappy one that was released the same year as the good one <laughs> um but yeah those uh would be certainly so my ones uh phone bill for especially is a really good one and a film that i really need to revisit i remember it being really great and the fact that kiva sutherland's just got the best creepy voice for that Yes. So yeah, um, but that's it for obviously this episode. Thank you as always for listening, and if you make sure to hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you happen to be listening, uh, you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and we're also on Instagram as well. And uh, you know, maybe leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the show. As it all helps raise the profile of the show. Uh, you can check out our full archive at moviesandteapodcast.wordpress.com. We're complete with all our previous seasons, all the Shark Weeks, all our Friday film clubs, where every Friday myself and Kim both pick a film to put together into one crazy-ass double feature for you to enjoy. Um, and we've also got some other bits of fun writing and reviews on there as well. So plenty to enjoy. But Kim, where are we going next? Well, we're moving five years later to 2007, where we're going to be looking at uh, David Fincher's, obviously, David Fincher's next film, Zodiac. Yeah, Zodiac, the hunt for the ever-elusive Zodiac killer. Um, sees us move, obviously, to San Francisco, 1970s. A film very critically acclaimed, but uh, one that I'm kind of keen to revisit, because it was kind of not one that sort of sat with myself. I don't know about yourself, Kim. Did Have you seen Zodiac before? I think I saw half of it, and then I didn't finish it. <laughs> so make sure you join us next time for re-evaluations and Kim being forced to watch the rest of the movie. Um, but that's all to join. But thank you as well for listening. Thank you to my co-host Kim. And uh, we'll be back next time to talk about Zodiac. Good night.